morning. Welcome to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're excited that you're here. Um, I am Pastor Ian. I'm the youth and family pastor, and we're excited to have you here. Whether you're joining us here or outside or online, wherever you are, just thank you for being here. A um, couple of announcements. Uh, tomorrow there is a funeral here for John Dirk. Um, if you knew him or you knew the family, you're, you're welcome to come. Um, so that'll be at 10 a.m. here. Um, yeah, if you have any questions, call the church office in the morning. Um, there are also, there's also coming up a uh, benefit for Tyler Bloomdahl if you want to donate to that. Um, yeah, there are, there's more info in your bulletin. Um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Nate. Nate has a, uh, a thing on a, an opportunity to volunteer. All right, so this is usually the time of year where I start talking about the Three Eagle Half Marathon, which as of this point is still happening. Uh, October, I probably should have looked up the date, um, 12th, 10th? All right, someone's looking it up for me. We'll confirm. Um, but uh, it's going to be run a little bit differently this year. Um, for those of you who don't know, we usually do a... Uh, ho uh, we do one of the aid stations. In fact, we do the last aid station, um, which is perhaps the most important because we're the one aid station that gets both the 5K runners and the half marathon runners. Um, because of all the health and safety stuff going on, we've had to change how we do things a little bit. Um, we're actually doing wave starts, doing heats, um, and so things will look a little different. Um, and also how we do our aid stations will look a little different. Rather than having a bunch of volunteers all holding cups that runners grab cups from, we'll actually just have them on the tables, um, and runners will just grab them as they go by and then drop them um, near the trash cans a little while afterwards. Um, so we really just need probably three people. Um, I'm a, I have it planned out to have three shifts. Um, so if we could have minimum of three people per shift, to kind of filling cups and picking up uh, trash. And then we, because we're right next to the Rice Lake road crossing, um, we also need someone who is willing to be a monitor there just to monitor traffic as runners come through. So if you are willing to do that, um, please talk to me after the service and I'll get you signed up and we can figure out which of the three shifts you wanna do. Or if you wanna do more than one, uh, more than one shift, please let me know. Thank you. With that, um, we are going to go right into worship. So I am going to ask you to stand with us as we start to sing.
morning. My name is Tim, one of the pastors here. So we're glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're joining us here in person or online. Um, this is the time of our service when we normally collect our offering. Um, we're not passing the plate during this season, and so there's a couple options for you on your way out. Um, there's plates to your left uh, and the tables on the back that you can give online as well. Um, yeah, so if you're visiting with us, please know that we're not expecting you to give. We're not asking you to give. Like, we want this service to be a gift to you. But for those of you who are faithful attenders, those are your opportunities to give. Right. With that in mind, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the chance to once again come together as your people in this place that you provide for us, that you, you, that you and your wisdom set apart this time in the week for all of us to gather as your people, that we can, we can come together, we can worship you, we can remind each other of your love for us, your care for us. We have the the privilege to come before you, to sing praise to you, to pray to you that we have we have access to you because of what you did for us in Jesus, that you took away our sin through his death on the cross. And we we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to glossed over that, that we have access to you, we can come to you in prayer, we can come to you in worship, knowing that our sin has been removed. We just thank you for that, we praise you for, for the way you've worked to provide a way for our sins to be forgiven. God, this morning we we pray for people here in the church who are Struggling in various ways, whether it's with health issues or different sin issues or whatever it may be, God, that you would work in a powerful way to bring healing, to bring restoration, where it's needed that you would give endurance and peace to walk through trials. God, that you would work in each of our lives to bring glory to your name, even when we can't understand what you're doing. We pray for different parts of our world that are in trial and turmoil, whether it's due to wildfires or sickness or racial tensions or all, like all, all this stuff going on in the world. God, we trust that you have a good and perfect plan in it, even when we can't see it, that you are in the process of making all things new. You're in the process of one day coming back to set all things right. And so we look forward to that day when you return, when all things are made new, when there's no more sickness, no more sin, no more death. But until that day comes, God, help us to to work, help us to strive for your purposes, not in fear that if we don't do enough, that things can go horribly wrong, but 
in confidence that you are at work and we get the privilege of joining you in your purposes now. The work that you want to do through our lives and in this world. I pray that as we enter, continue in this time of worship, that our minds would be calm, that our heart would be calm, that our minds would be fixed on you. We would lay aside anything that desires to distract us, that our minds and our heart would be fixed on the word we sing and the way they praise you and the way they worship you. Christ in Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you that you are who you are. You are who you've revealed yourself to be, that the truth we read in your word truly are true of you. We can be confident in those truths. So as we, we read those truths this morning, we read more about who you are. pray that those truths would settle deeply in our hearts that we would be amazed again by what a great God you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning, and like, just full disclosure, it's not the cheeriest passage in the Bible. Right? It's like if you were coming this morning to like, hear a sunshine and rainbow sermon, like, might not be in the right place, but like, like life's not always sunshine and rainbows, right? And so we want to press into the more challenging passages as well as the happier passages in the Bible. And so, so World War II right, was, was instrumental in transforming the role of airplanes in warfare. Right? Like the United States entered World War II with 2,500 airplanes in their military. And they had 300,000 by the end of the war. Like, it's like, that's a tremendous growth. Right? And with that tremendous growth came like, a tremendous amount of need for learning about how to design airplanes for battle effectively. And in his book, How Not to Be Wrong, the author Jordan Ellenberg described the dilemma that the United States military faced during World War II if they were learning how to effectively design airplanes. They had the problem that like, many of their airplanes were getting shot down. And so they wanted to add armor to the airplanes. But like, adding armor to an airplane also adds weight to the airplane. And that weight makes the plane less maneuverable, makes the plane use more fuel. And so like, if there's not enough armor on airplanes, they get shot down because there's not enough armor. But if there's too much armor on the airplanes, then they get shot down because they can't maneuver fast enough to avoid getting shot down. But somewhere in the middle, there's an optimum balance. And so the challenge that military engineers are trying to figure out was, like, where is that optimum balance? And to figure that out, they, they did some research. And they made an interesting discovery. As, as planes returned from their missions, like these researchers noticed that the planes were not being hit in the same parts uniformly. When they would look at these airplanes, they discovered that an airplane would have like 1.1 bullet hole per square foot by the engine. 
but they'd have 1.7 holes per square foot in the fuselage. Right? So more than a half of bullet hole per square foot in the fuselage more than in the engine area. Right? And so like, the officer saw an opportunity for efficiency. Right? Like, instead of spreading the armor out evenly across the whole airplane, like, why not concentrate the armor in the places that the plane was more likely to be hit, right? namely the fuselage. They just needed to figure out exactly how much armor should go on those parts of the plane that got hit more often. And so to find that answer, they, they turned their research over to a group of mathematicians. But those mathematicians came back with a surprising answer. They told the military officers, you shouldn't put more armor where, the, where, the, where you're seeing more bullet holes. Instead, you should put more armor where you're seeing fewer bullet holes. So they should put more armor on the engines where there are fewer bullet holes. And like that, that answer flabbergasted the military officers. Like, why, like why would he put more armor where there are fewer bullet holes? But for these smart, logical mathematicians, the reasoning is quite simple. There's no reason to expect that a plane would get hit in one area more than another. You would expect an equal distribution of bullet holes across the whole airplane. So the question then is, like, where are the missing bullet holes? Like, where are the holes that you would expect to find if the distribution was equal? And the answer to the mathematicians was obvious. Right? The missing holes are on the airplanes that didn't come back. Right? Which suggested that getting hit in the engine actually brought planes down far more frequently than getting hit in the fuselage. And therefore, they said that you should put more armor on the engines. And those recommendations were adopted. They were used on planes that flew in World War II and in Korea and in Vietnam. And it saved untold numbers of airplanes. But if not for those mathematicians, the military officers would have armored the wrong part of the plane and would have had devastating results. So here's the point. Right knowledge with wrong application is unhelpful at best and devastatingly harmful at worst. The military had the right knowledge. They knew where the returned airplanes were more likely to be hit. But without, without the mathematicians, they would have had the wrong application and would have had devastating consequences. We do the same thing in the book of Habakkuk. As we'll see in a minute, like Habakkuk knows and acknowledges right truths about God. But the way he applies those truths to his situation causes him to be totally confused by what God is doing. So just to refresh our memory, right, last week we saw like, Habakkuk complain to God because like, there are wicked people in Judah doing all kinds of sinful things. Like, God's own people are doing these wicked things and like, Habakkuk's upset because God wouldn't punish them. God wasn't doing anything about it. But then God responds to Habakkuk and he says, Oh, don't you worry. I'm going to punish them. And in fact, I'm going to punish them by raising up the ruthless, dreaded, wicked Babylonians to be my instrument of judgment against Judah. And now we pick up the passage here, and Habakkuk is going to respond and say, wait, you can't do that. You're righteous, and you're just, and the Babylonians are even more wicked than Judah. Like, surely, using the Babylonians to judge Judah goes against your character. And so that's 
That's my summary version of what Habakkuk said, but let's read the actual words. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Habakkuk says. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too evil to look at, too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacher, treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all, the, all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station and station myself on the rampart. I will look to see what he will say to me what answer I am to give to this complaint. So like what we see in this passage, the like right, right knowledge of God like with the wrong application leads to confusion and consternation. Or like put it a little more succinctly, like good theology plus bad ethics equals despair. Like, like in this passage, Habakkuk asks three questions. And each of these questions kind of corresponds to one part of that equation. For much of our time this morning, I just want to walk through this passage and look at each of those questions and consider what they teach us about God and about ourselves. And like the first question that Habakkuk asked like highlights the fact that Habakkuk does indeed have good theology. Like Habakkuk knows and he understands who God is. We see this right off the bat, verse 12. When Habakkuk writes, like, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Now, at first, like, that sounds like a question, like, less a question of good theology and more of a statement of doubt. Right? But the next few lines make clear that's a, that's a rhetorical question. Right? Habakkuk is saying, like, God, you are from everlasting. And the rest of verse, he says, My God, my Holy One, we shall not die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too evil to, to your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Like, so just notice like all the things Habakkuk is acknowledging about God here. Habakkuk acknowledges that God is indeed eternal. Like, he acknowledges that God is indeed holy. Like, he even acknowledges that God is the one who appointed the Babylonians to judge Judah. And he acknowledges that God is too pure to tolerate wrongdoing. Again, all those things are true. Like God is eternal. Like God is holy. God is too pure to tolerate wrongdoing. Psalm 5 says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Everything Habakkuk says here about God's character is true. So even in the midst of his confusion and his consternation and his complaining, like 
Habakkuk doesn't lose faith that his God is the all-powerful, sovereign, holy God of the universe. Habakkuk's concern is not whether God is God. His concern is not whether God is capable of doing what he said he's going to do. Habakkuk is fully convinced that God is capable of raising up the Babylonians to judge Judah. Habakkuk's concern is whether God is right to raise up the Babylonians to judge Judah. And so like, up to this point, Habakkuk's in good shape. He's, everything he said is true. Like, he's showing that he has a good view of God's power, God's ability. But then he starts to get himself in trouble. Like, he moved from acknowledging truth about God to questioning how God is applying those truths as he rules the universe. Right? Habakkuk's Habakkuk's theology is good, but his ethics are bad. And by ethics, I just mean like how his theology applies to his understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And that's where Habakkuk kind of misses the point. He has bad ethics. And we see that in the second part of verse 13. Like Habakkuk says, Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. It's like Habakkuk's second question is why? He asks that two times, two different ways, but basically the question is like, why are you using the Babylonians to judge us when they are even more wicked than we are? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And like when we first read that, when I first read that, like it seemed like a valid question. Because like, human beings are comparison machines. Like, all day long, we just compare ourselves to other people. We compare our job performance to that of our coworkers. Right? Like, that's like what sport is, right? Like, we compare our athletic performance to that of our opponent. Like, like on social media, we compare our quality of life to that of our friends and acquaintances. Again, in nowhere... Are we more inclined to compare ourselves to others than in the area of of morality? We love to compare our behavior to that of other people and then point out we're more righteous than they are. It just, it comes naturally. We we love to point that out. And if you don't believe me, you don't have kids. I won't pick on my kids because our kids are perfect. But like I think back to my day teaching fifth grade. And I'd like I'd reprimand a kid for misbehaving, and like nine times out of ten, the first words out of his mouth were, "Yeah, but so and so either did it first or did it worse." Like their argument was never, "I didn't do anything wrong." Right? Their argument was always, "Okay, I did it, but I'm not the worst one." Right? And, or just like think back, like the very first sin, or right, Adam and Eve are in the garden. That they both sin by eating the fruit that God, that, come, that God told them not to eat. And God comes to Adam and he says, what have you done? And what does Adam say? He doesn't say, like, oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Like, he says, yeah, I should have done that. Right? But Eve ate some herself and she gave it to me. Like, she's worse. Like, get her instead. Like, from the very beginning... We've had a tendency to compare ourselves to others 
and to judge our righteousness in comparison to other people. Right, so it's not surprising that Habakkuk goes down the same route as well. When he says, like, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That line of thinking makes sense. It seems logical to us because like, comparative righteousness is so ingrained in our thinking. Like, as long as we are more righteous than the person standing next to us, we tend to think we're in pretty good shape. But if we just stop for a minute, we think about the things that Habakkuk has already acknowledged about God, it's not hard to see where this thinking fails. Habakkuk just acknowledged that God cannot look on evil or tolerate wrongdoing. And last week we read how Habakkuk's first complaint was that the people of Judah were evil and acting wickedly and God wasn't doing anything. Right, so two things Habakkuk confirming. One, Judah is wicked. Two, God cannot tolerate wickedness and will judge the wicked. Right, and that should be all Habakkuk needs to know. Or that should be all that matters. Judah's wicked. God cannot tolerate wickedness and will judge the wicked. Right? Like nowhere are we told that God's instrument of judgment must be more righteous than the sinner he is judging. Because the source of judgment is not ultimately Babylon. The source of judgment is God himself, and he is perfectly righteous. And so the tool God uses to judge Judah doesn't matter. Because it's God who is the one who is doing the judging. When I was teaching fifth grade, and a student would say, yeah, but so-and-so, whatever, my response was usually, like, like, don't worry. I'm going to deal with them too. But right now, I'm worried about you and what you've done. Like, and that essentially is God's response to Habakkuk. We'll look at God's response in depth next week. But basically he says, like, don't worry. Babylon's going to get theirs. But right now I'm worried about you. The prophet Jeremiah, who writes about the same time as Habakkuk, he prophesies against Babylon and says, I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. Babylon will be plundered. All who plunder her will have their fill. Take up your positions around Babylon, all you who draw the bow. Shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Since this is the vengeance of the Lord, take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done to others. In the book of Daniel, part of that book tells the story of the Babylonians falling into the hands of the Persians. And that happens like less than 50 years after Babylon conquered Judah. The so Babylon like, was indeed wicked. And like, they were judged for their wickedness eventually. But their level of wickedness compared to Judah, it's inconsequential to whether God is right to use them as a tool to judge Judah. All that matters is that Judah deserved judgment, and God gave them judgment. And in so doing, God shows himself to be perfectly right, perfectly just. But so often, we make the same mistake that Habakkuk made. 
Like we, we love to look at the world through a lens of comparative righteousness. The movies we watch, the stories we read, that they teach us to see a world that's a battle between good guys and bad guys, between heroes and villains, the light side and the dark side. Like, take your pick. But like, the thing is, we, we always see ourselves as the good guys. In our movies and our stories, they teach us that the good guys always win. And so we see ourselves as the good guys. And because we're the good guys, we think we deserve to come out on top. And we have to keep fighting the bad guys until we win. But the Bible is clear. Like Romans 3 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So I don't know about I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible, unfortunately, doesn't have a little parentheses after there is no one righteous that says, except for you, Tim Byer. Like, it doesn't say that. There's no one righteous. Like, Isaiah 53, 6. We all, all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're all sinners. And our sin means that just like Judah, we deserve judgment. And it doesn't matter if we're more righteous than some of the people around us. What matters is that we are less righteous than what God demands. And therefore, we deserve punishment. Like I've said it before, and I will keep saying it until we all believe it deep in our soul. The Bible is not a story of good guys versus bad guys. And if it was, we'd be on the wrong side. It's a story of one good guy who comes not to fight against the bad guys, but to save the bad guys and to transform the bad guys into good guys. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still wicked, while we were still evil, while we were still the bad guys, Christ died for us. We're all sinful. We all deserve judgment for our sin. But God sent Jesus, while we were still his enemies, to die on a cross and to be judged for us. Like on the cross, God treated sinless Jesus as if he had committed Every sin you and I ever sinned and will ever sin. And if we trust Jesus, then God treats us as if we lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. And therefore, our sin is not judged on ourselves, but on Jesus. And Jesus did that for us, not when we reached a certain level of righteousness, but when we are still his enemies, when we had done nothing to deserve it. So yes, we have an enemy. But that enemy is Satan. Not fellow image bearers of God who we happen to disagree with. But if you look around and you see the way we interact with each other, we would think other people who disagree with us, who we think are less righteous than us, are the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Everybody else is just somebody that Jesus died for. If we walk around comparing our righteousness to that of other people, and we expect God to bless us for our righteousness, 
and to punish other people for their lack of righteousness, we will, like Habakkuk, end up in a place of deep despair. The final question Habakkuk asks here is found in verse 17 when he says, Is he, that is Babylon, to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Basically, Habakkuk's question is, like, how long is this going to last? Like, is there any hope? Is this going to keep going on and on and on? Like at the time Habakkuk's writing this, Babylon is a rising power. Right? There have been two other kind of powers in the, in the region. Right? There was Assyria and there, were, there was Egypt. Right? But both of those nations are in decline and uh, Babylon's ascending and it seems like they're just going to dominate the region for years and years to come. Like they're so much stronger than their enemies. Like for Babylon, like capturing their enemies, that that's easy if fishermen catching fish. Like from a human perspective, like it looks like they're going to rule the world for a long time. Like that's a bleak picture in Habakkuk's eyes. The future looks exceedingly bleak for the enemies of Babylon. And Habakkuk wonders, like, is there any hope? Habakkuk, based on God's character, expected God to act in a certain way. And when God didn't act that way, it throws Habakkuk into a deep cycle of despair. Just look at some of the allegations he starts throwing at God. You've made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. Habakkuk's conclusion is like, God, you don't care. Like, you don't care about us. Like, you're happy to let us act like sea creatures who live in a world where wickedness goes unchecked. Like, he says, like, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a video of a great white shark like, attacking a seal, but it's not a pleasant experience for that seal. Right? And Habakkuk is saying, like, that's us. Like, we're just a bunch of seals swimming in an ocean of sharks, and God's not doing anything about it. Like, you just pause right there. We have this, I think, unhelpful tendency to want to rush past hard things. We want to rush past the uncomfortable things and get to the good parts. But sometimes I think we just need to sit and feel the tension that comes with living in a fallen world. And for some of you, there are... Like, there are things going on in your lives right now that make you feel this way. Like, I don't know what's going on in each of your hearts, right? but odds are, like, some of you are wrestling with these questions. Like, God, where are you? Like, why won't you do something? And then, like, it's vital for us to see that wrestling with these questions is not something that we need to be ashamed of. Habakkuk wrestles with them, and he gets the book of the Bible. And so it's not something to be ashamed of. So if you're here this morning, you're watching online, like, just know that you're in good company if you're wrestling with these kind of questions. Like, and God's not going to forsake you. God will walk with you as you ask these types of questions. But in order for that to happen, we have to take the next step that we see Habakkuk take here. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, 
I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what, you will, what he will say to me and, ans- and what answer I am to give the, to this complaint. So just notice like, what Habakkuk does with his despair. Right? He doesn't let it drive him away from God. He doesn't let it cause him to look for hope in some other source. His despair doesn't cause him to conclude that God isn't real. It causes him to approach God. And the way he approaches God is it's interesting. Right? He almost comes at God with a little bit of, a little bit of swagger. Right? Like, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to watch. Like, what do you have to say to me, God? And it's a little reminiscent of the book of Job. Right? Like Job asked many of the same questions with kind of the same attitude. And what's interesting is how God's response varies if we compare his response to Habakkuk to that of his response to Job. Right? Job asks many of the same questions that Habakkuk is asking. But when God responds to Job, he just like, he dresses Job down. Right? He says, like, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Like, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what, on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While well, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Right? Job asked these questions and gets dressed down by God. Right? That goes on for another 120 verses. Of God just going after Job like, asking him questions, dressing him down. And next week, we'll look at God's response to Habakkuk. And we'll see that, for whatever reason, God is not nearly as aggressive in his response to Habakkuk. But here's what we have to see, what we have to understand. At the end of both books, at the end of Habakkuk and the end of Job, both Habakkuk and Job emerge with deepened faith for having walked through what they walked through. They emerged with deepened faith for having asked the questions they asked and for listening to God's response to those questions. God responded to each of them differently because God knew each of their hearts perfectly. And he knew what response was needed in order to move them to a deeper faith and trust in him. So if you're wrestling with doubts, if you're wrestling with struggles. My hope, my prayer, my urging to you that you would run to God with those things. Like, I can't guarantee you anything about how God will respond to you in your situation. But only God knows the depths of your heart and what kind of response will move you to a deeper faith and trust in Him. But here's what I know. That the safest place to ask hard questions of God is to God himself. As I said last week, right? No question, no complaint you bring to God will catch God off, will catch God off guard. He already knows your heart. He already knows your thoughts. He already knows your struggles. And he is good. Even if we can't see his plan, even when we can't see his purpose, like he is good. 
That the invitation here is to run to Him with your struggles and your fears and your complaints. And trust Him to walk with you through your dark times. Trust that He will use those dark times to deepen and strengthen your faith. We've seen in this passage that a right knowledge of the character of God combined with wrong expectations about how His character is applied to our interactions with his interactions with humans, can lead us into periods of despair. But the solution is not to give up on God. It's not to give in to despair. The solution is to run to God and to ask Him, like Habakkuk does here, to show you where your misunderstanding lies. That doesn't mean He'll give you a direct answer to your questions. But running to him in the midst of your turmoil is the surest path for deepening your faith. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we praise you that when we were your enemies, when we were lost in our sin, that you did not leave us to deal with the judgment and the consequences for ourselves, but that you sent Jesus to die in our place, on our behalf, that by trusting in him, we can look forward to eternal life with you. And likewise, God, we praise you that even now as we, we know you, we trust in you, that when we have periods of doubt, periods of despair. You do not leave us to work our way out of that doubt and despair on our own. That you invite us to come to you to bring our hard questions, to bring our struggles, to bring our trials, to bring our fears to you. That when we do that out of your love for us, you, you walk with us through those trials that you have good purposes for us in mind in the midst of those struggles, even when we can't see them. We trust that you, your all-knowing love for us, have a purpose, have a plan, that you will work those things for our good, that you will use them to transform us more and more into the image of your Son, that you will use them to bring glory to your name. God, as we walk through periods of despair, of confusion, of trial, of suffering, help us to cling to faith in you, your good purposes, even when we can't see them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we leave here, my hope, my prayer that you would go an assured confidence that God is walking with you whatever the days and weeks ahead hold for you. Go in peace. You're dismissed.
Stop. You never stop. You never stop. 